This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to our event today. Uh, my name is Stephanie Purseller. I'm the Sustainability Manager here. And this event is a part of our Earth Month celebrations. So all month of the April, we've been doing different events um, around celebrating the Earth and around sustainability initiatives as well. So um, some of those things, just to note really quick, is this week we had a movie night on Monday. We were showing the movie um, No Impact Man, and then all week long we have e-waste collections. So if you have electronics that are sitting at home that are broken or of no longer of use to you, please bring them to the U building in the Bob Marge Lounge or in the Student Street between S and U uh, all this week, and then on Saturday as well, a community drive in the T lot from 8 to noon. But today we have Josh Ellis with us, and Josh is a project manager for natural resource policy, working with the Metropolitan Planning Council. Josh is currently focusing on a campaign to address what our water is worth in this area, as well as an advisor, an advisor to the Committee for Great Lakes Cities Initiative, studying separating Lake Michigan from the river. And Josh is going to talk to us again uh, today about Chicagoland's um, future of water. So welcome, Josh. Thank you. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, I am Josh Ellis. I do work for the Metropolitan Planning Council. I am contractually obligated to show you this very boring slide. Uh, this is who we are. We've been around for 76 years. We're based in Chicago, but we work on regional development issues, transportation, natural resources, affordable housing, uh, and we work all the way from Michigan City, Indiana, uh, across all the way to the Fox River, and then, and then up uh, to the Wisconsin border. We're a nonprofit. Uh, we're not a unit of government, um, and we provide uh, policy insight and analysis uh, to uh, units of government um, on a range of issues. Uh, I work mostly on natural resources policy, and really that's mostly water supply and stormwater issues, uh, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. All right, this is not the uh, Midwest and not the Chicago region. These are a couple of maps of the Middle East and uh, uh, river basins, the Tigris-Euphrates on the left and the, and the Nile on the right. One of the biggest challenges with water management uh, is that whether it's rivers or rain or aquifers, um, and now with Lake Michigan, the pipe system that we use to, to move water all over the place, uh, those uh, water resources do not line up with political boundaries. Okay? Uh, they used to. Uh, so here you've got the Egyptian Empire controlling an entire river basin. You have the, the Babylonians and then the, the Arab Muslims and then the Ottomans controlling an entire river basin. And it made management of those resources uh, a lot more straightforward. Uh, we have a different model in the United States. Uh, we typically use rivers to divide political uh, units. Uh, so there are often boundaries between states. Here's the Ohio River separating about eight states uh, and hundreds of counties and probably thousands of municipalities who are all now competing uh, for the same water resource. Uh, and this is, this is very much true uh, with many of our rivers, which form boundaries instead of being the center of political units. Um, here in the Chicago region, uh, the same uh, basic uh, problem exists. We have three major water resources. Lake Michigan provides around 77% of the region's water uh, and supplies people uh, as far out as Plainfield, which is on the border of Will and Kendall County. Uh, then we have groundwater resources, uh, both deep and shallow aquifers, and they're a little bit different. I'll talk about those in a second. 
they supply about 20% of the region. Uh, they're the dark blue on the map here. Um, and aquifers are, you know, underground water resources. They're not exactly like lakes underground. They're more sort of spongy uh, soils saturated with water. Uh, but they spread out, and uh, you can have two, three, four municipalities tapped into the same aquifer uh, with little to no understanding that your neighboring community is also tapped into the same aquifer, uh, and this creates a challenge. Uh, we also do draw some water from the Fox and the Kankakee Rivers. Uh, Elgin, Aurora, and Kankakee are the three largest municipalities that take uh, river water, uh, and those are marked here in the green. Uh, with aquifers, there's two basic kinds. There's deep and shallow. Deep are obviously deeper. Uh, they're capped by solid bedrock. It takes a long, long time, hundreds of years for water to, to, to seep through the bedrock down into that aquifer. So when you take water out of a deep aquifer, for all intents and purposes, you're mining it out like you would mine precious metals out of a mountain. Uh, you take it out, it's not going to be back anytime soon. Uh, shallow aquifers are closer to the surface of the ground, uh, and they recharge every time it rains, but that also means they're more susceptible to drought, and they're more susceptible to pollution from runoff uh, from, you know, stormwater from storm events or something like that. Uh, we have a big problem in this region with uh, road salt uh, contaminating shallow aquifer water. Uh, just as a quick quiz, where does Palos Hills get its water from? It's drinking water... Lake Michigan, yes. So it's pumped all the way out here from the lake. Um, and again, uh, we pump it as far away as Plainfield, which is 50 miles uh, from Lake Michigan as the crow flies. Uh, but you see this very complicated map, which is intended to be complicated. Don't worry about it. This shows all of the different water resources that we have in this region and the overlap of political units. So you've got uh, the underlying all of this, the the actual white background is the deep aquifer, which is under the entire region. You've got shallow aquifers marked in the white lines and the brown areas. You've got the Fox River Basin. You've got Lake Michigan. You've got uh, 11 counties here in northeastern Illinois. And in those 11 counties, 300 or so municipalities, all trying to use water for basic services, uh, drinking, bathing, that kind of stuff, but also for economic development and also to sustain uh, wetlands and other uh, natural areas. Um, so, with all of those political units and with all those water sources comes the need for coordinated planning and, and coordinated management of them. Uh, and my organization uh, worked with a former governor, who shall not be named, uh, to issue an executive order uh, about five years ago now, uh, creating the uh, Northeastern Illinois Regional Water Supply Planning Area, which rolls off the tongue, uh, and another group, another regional water supply planning area down in the middle uh, of the state called the East Central Illinois Regional Water Supply Planning Area, which is even better. Um, and those two planning groups spent three years. Uh, they brought together mayors, county officials, uh, folks from environmental groups, agriculture, uh, industry, uh, and did these uh, two different studies of water supply, uh, water availability and demand trends uh, from now until 2050. And I brought an executive summary of that report uh, right here, Water 2050. Uh, and you can feel free to take some on, on your way out. Uh, so we spent three years doing that. We have this plan. Uh, it's not a binding plan. It requires that uh, communities and counties and everybody else choose to adopt uh, the recommendations in it. 
One of the most significant things that was done as part of that planning process was some demand scenarios uh, for our region, and, and they did three. So the current trends, which you see in the middle here, is the sort of do-nothing scenario. If we, if we do nothing differently than we do now, right? So every year, uh, people get a little more in tune with water conservation. Um, we have development throughout the entire region. Uh, water rates don't really increase at, at the similar uh, rate as uh, inflation. Uh, it's it's do-nothing differently than we're doing now. Uh, and you see between 2005 and 2050, a 36% increase in demand for water. Over the same time, the region's population is anticipated to grow 32%. So the, so the demand for water is outpacing population growth. Uh, in a more resource-intensive scenario, uh, where more of the development is in uh, Kane and Kendall and McHenry and Will counties further out, where people have bigger lots, bigger lawns, uh, so there's more lawn watering, that kind of thing. Um, in a more resource-intensive scenario, water demand grows by 64%. Population is still growing 32%. So here, water demand is clearly outpacing water supply. Uh, and in a less resource-intensive scenario, where most of development is in DuPage and Cook County, uh, which are more urbanized, smaller lots, less irrigation for lawns and that kind of thing, uh, we have 7% increase, uh, which is good. Uh, unfortunately, unless we change a lot of policies, uh, we're not going to get to the less resource-intensive scenario. Um, we're hopefully going to get current trends, and I worry that we might actually be at the more resource-intensive scenario. Uh, again, one of the factors that went into these demand scenarios was, the, was where future population growth is going to go. Uh, Cook and DuPage, just because they're smaller lot sizes, more multifamily housing, things like that, your, your, wa your per capita water use is a lot lower. Uh, and some of these further uh, suburbs uh, have per capita demand that's a lot higher. Uh, this map shows uh, population data from the 2010 census, uh, and the hatched area over there is the area that currently gets Lake Michigan water, uh, and the communities that are in kind of a shade of red are communities that have lost population. The communities in shades of green are the ones that are gaining population, and if you look at the map, if the color contrasts were a little better, you'd be able to see very clearly that the communities that are not on Lake Michigan water, uh, which is the most uh, renewable, most sustainable water supply that we have, the communities that are not on that are the ones that are growing fastest, right? So it's the communities on groundwater and river water where their supply is most challenged that are growing the fastest. Somewhat ironically, those are also the communities with the highest water rates. So when people tell you that water rates, water rate increases scare away residents or businesses, it's simply not true. The fastest growing communities in the region are the ones with the highest water rates and the, the least sustainable water supply. Here's the same information just in a chart uh, of the top 20 communities in northeastern Illinois by total population growth between 20, uh, 2000 and, two, and 2010. Uh, 15 of the top 20 are not on Lake Michigan water, right? The, all those green communities are on groundwater uh, or, in the case of Elgin, uh, river water. Uh, you know, Aurora added 55,000 people in the last 10 years, uh, and they're on deep aquifers and some Fox River water, uh, and that's just a huge amount of population growth, Joliet too. Um, so population is going where water is most scarce, which is troublesome. Uh, I don't want to scare everyone. There is a good opportunity here for, for communities up in the northwestern part of the region. Uh, they have created these counties and the municipalities in them, everything that's shaded green there, uh, have created this group, the Northwest Water Planning Alliance, uh, to do some proactive planning and management of uh, the ground and river water there. 
Uh, let's talk about Lake Michigan for uh, a good chunk of the discussion here. Um, Lake Michigan obviously is the, is the region's largest source of water. 77% of the region gets it. Um, and I'm sure most of you know uh, about 110 years ago, a decision was made to reverse the direction of the Chicago River and build a system of canals connecting Lake Michigan uh, to the Des Plaines River, which connects to the Illinois, which connects to the Mississippi. Um, that was done because we were depositing raw sewage and stormwater and all the runoff from the stockyards and everything else, it's just disgusting, uh, was, was flowing into the Chicago River and then into the lake, and then we were pumping water out of the lake to drink. So people were dying of cholera and typhoid and other diseases that today we would consider probably third world diseases. Uh, people were dying in Chicago by the hundreds if not thousands every summer uh, when the weather heated up. Uh, so this decision was made, this infrastructure system was built, and in doing so it, it fundamentally changed the hydrology of the region. Uh, this gray area here, uh, shaded on the map, uh, is the, the portion of northeastern Illinois where after it rained, all that runoff would drain to the Chicago River system and ultimately to the lake. So that was our contribution to Lake Michigan. Our contribution of water to Lake Michigan was the rain runoff from this gray area. Now, because the river goes the opposite direction, we're no longer contributing that. We're actually diverting it uh, because it now flows into the sewer system, into the river, and to the lake. So what's very interesting uh, is that that water, that runoff, that stormwater runoff, counts as water we have consumed from Lake Michigan. Okay? Um, the other states and uh, provinces and municipalities around the Great Lakes uh, developed some uh, understandable antagonism toward uh, northeastern Illinois and Chicago for taking water out of the Great Lakes. This eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court, who capped uh, our ability to take water out. So we're allowed to take 3,200 cubic feet per second, which is 2 billion gallons a day. Um, and again, all that stormwater runoff counts in that total. So it counts as water we consumed, even though we never used it for anything. Um, we don't currently use all uh, 2 billion gallons. We use about 85 or 90 percent, depending on the year. So we're actually, at this point, leaving some of our available water in the lake, which is a good thing. Uh, 20 years ago, we were using about 140 percent of what we're allowed to use, so we are well over, uh, and we've been able to work that down through efficiency, conservation, uh, rate adjustments, a whole, a whole variety of things. Uh, so right now, we only use 85, 90 percent. Um, the largest section here in the, in the pie chart is pumpage for use for drinking, bathing, businesses, that kind of stuff. The stormwater runoff is the second largest, and of course we never used it for anything. It flooded our streets and basements, but it counts as water we consumed. Uh, the next biggest is, is this called discretionary here, the 9%. Uh, this is water that is used to flush uh, sewage out of the river after uh, large storms. We have a combined sewer system in most of all of Chicago and most of the Chicago region. Uh, so the same sewer system uh, where the water goes after you flush your toilet is where rain goes when it runs off the street. Uh, the pipes are not built uh, with the capacity to hold all of that rain uh, and so in a large storm it overflows. Uh, it overflows onto the streets but also uh, it is released into the river system, and as you can imagine, when you have a mixture of sewage and, and stormwater, uh, after the storm, some of it sticks to the walls of the canal, and they use this 9.2% here to flush the canal system clean of some of this uh, stuff. Nice. Um, so, 
this is more or less how we use the water. There's, there's uh, some other water that's in there, just a small percentage to maintain navigation levels uh, in the waterway system. But it's important to, to note, when we, in the majority of the Chicago region, when we, when we use water, we flush it down the drain, it goes to one of the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District's treatment plants, and then is released back into the river. So the next time you're in downtown Chicago and you're walking across the bridge on Michigan Avenue to go shopping or something, and you look down in the river and you say, what a nice setting here on the river, uh, just remember that 70% of that water is treated effluent that was flushed down your toilet a day or two ago. Um, and it's not really treated that well uh, because it's not rated as a recreational waterway, so they don't have to treat it to the standard that they would if it were rated as a recreational waterway. Uh, you've probably heard a lot about TARP or the deep tunnel. They're the same thing. Uh, TARP is tunnel and reservoir plan. TARP, uh, this is a massive billion, 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 billion dollar uh, project uh, to capture and hold some of, that, some of that flooding, some of that stormwater runoff. Uh, hold it until the weather dries out on a day like today where now there's capacity at the treatment plant to be able to clean it up and still put it back in the river. Uh, that, that project is behind schedule. <clears throat> um, when it is finished, uh, hopefully we'll have a lot less flooding in the region, a lot fewer discharges to the river. Uh, about once a year, uh, there's a rainstorm that is so big that the only way that MWRD can prevent massive flooding of downtown Chicago uh, is actually to release water back into Lake Michigan. So they actually reverse the flow of the, the river and it flows back into the lake. Uh, it happens about once a year. It happened last year in the giant storm that flooded the entire region uh, in whatever that was, June. Uh, the process of building tarp has slowed down. Uh, the tunnels are actually finished. It's the reservoirs that are still under construction. Uh, and the, the problem there is that all of the rock and material that's dug out of those, out of those quarries needs to be sold to someone uh, for use in like construction projects or something like that. Right now, because of the economy, there are no construction projects anywhere, and so nobody is buying that material. And so the process of digging those quarries out uh, has slowed down because there's nothing to there's nowhere to go with the rock and the sediment. Uh, that stormwater runoff that I talked about, if we can reduce that amount of stormwater runoff, uh, not only does it help with managing flooding and, and damage to property, uh, but it also essentially creates more water that we could actually pump out of the lake uh, for use or for pumping to other towns uh, to relieve their groundwater pressures. Uh, if you can keep that stormwater from going into the sewer system, uh, you can use it for something else. And there are a variety of ways to do that. This is the roof of McCormick Place here. Uh, the big convention center down by the lake. Uh, the roof of McCormick actually captures the rain and puts it through a, a filtration system and actually goes right back into the lake. So the, the water from the roof of McCormick never goes into the sewer system. Uh, the southern part of Lakeshore Drive, which goes right by McCormick Place, after the first inch of rain, the first inch is the dirtiest because there's salts and oils and stuff like that, uh, that goes into the sewer, but everything after the first inch also go, gets filtered and goes back directly into the lake. So there are other ways directly along the lake shore that you could return some stormwater directly back to the lake through infrastructure projects. Then there's other things like the system up here on the top, which is a rainwater harvesting system to capture water from your roof, store it in the tank, and actually use it in your toilet. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. But this stormwater runoff is huge. In, in 2005, which was a flood year, uh, on average, it was 500 million gallons a day, uh, which is twice as much as all of the suburban communities take from groundwater resources in a day. So if anybody ever tells you that the region is running out of water, they're simply wrong. It's just that we don't have the water in the right place at the right time in the right form. 
we have a whole bunch of stormwater and we don't have a lot of groundwater. And if we could get some of that stormwater to the groundwater communities, we'd be in a much better position. There's supposed to be a map here, but it's not showing up. Uh, okay, so that's the diversion. That's, those are the rules about taking water from the lake. There's a separate set of rules uh, controlled by the Illinois Department of Natural Resources about how that water is allocated okay, to communities. Every community has to apply. Palos Hills has to apply. Everybody else on Lake Michigan has to apply on a rolling basis every 10 years or so. Uh, and there's uh, some, some problems with that system. I'm not going to go into it too much. But uh, there are lots of ways for you to lose water from your water system. Obviously, leaks in somebody's house is one way, uh, but then you can magnify, uh, multiply, escalate those leaks up to the, a large water supply system, uh, and it gets uh, pretty big. Uh, Department of Natural Resources asks communities to keep their water loss to 8% or less, which is actually pretty good. The problem is in their accounting method, there's this giant loophole, so that communities often have much, much more leakage than that, but it's just forgiven. Uh, when I was in high school and we'd have gym class uh, play softball or something, most kids got three strikes. The really uncoordinated ones got a bunch of free, free strikes before the three strikes. Uh, and this is the same principle here. You have a whole bunch of free strikes that you can use up before anybody actually starts counting. Uh, and so there's a lot of loss that isn't just accounted for. Uh, and Chicago, which is actually pretty good in terms of uh, controlling uh, loss, uh, but just to give you an idea of the scale, lost between the two together 55 million gallons a day uh, to loss and theft and, and some other things. And that's all of that water that was pumped out of the, of the treatment facility but never arrived anywhere is non-revenue water, right? It costs something to pump it all out, and if it doesn't show up at someone's home or business, the utility doesn't generate any revenue, and so they're operating at a loss for that amount of water. Uh, Chicago's leakage is only about you know, 12% every year. There are lots of communities in the region who are 25%, 30%, 35%. Uh, if every time you went to the grocery store, uh, you lost 35% of your groceries on the way home after having paid for them, you would do something about the problem. Okay? Um, <clears throat> One of the things that a lot of people don't think about when it comes to water uh, is all of the energy that is required to uh, treat water from whatever the water source, uh, pump it to your homes, then you use it, and then it gets pumped to a treatment facility to clean up the wastewater. That gets treated. There's a lot of energy that goes into water. Nationwide, it's about 4% of the country's energy is used for moving water in one form or another. In California, uh, where they have a much larger sort of water crisis than a lot of other places, it's as high as 30% in some places, okay? It's a big chunk of municipal budgets, right? Municipalities don't pay for the electricity that's used in the library uh, or the town offices or something like that. They do pay for the electricity that's used for street lights, for pumping clean water, and for treating wastewater. And so for a lot of municipal governments, the energy costs of treating water can make up 80% of the, the community's energy, uh, municipal budget for energy. It, I mean, it's, it's a huge drain on resources. So there's a real connection between how much water we use and how much energy we use. Uh, and this is big because we're, we're nationwide, certainly in the Chicago region, we're entering what a lot of people are calling the infrastructure replacement era, right? Uh, in the city of Chicago, the majority of the 4,200 miles of pipe uh, that are there for moving water uh, supply and the 4,000 miles of pipe for moving sewer, they were all installed in 1890s, 1900s, 1910, 1920, right? Uh, and they were built with a 100-year lifespan. Well, 
it's 2011 now, it's 100 years after all that stuff was installed, and it's starting to fail. We're seeing more leakage, we're seeing more main breaks in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Cincinnati, Boston, lots of these older cities. All of that pipe needs to be taken out of the ground and replaced, so which means all these streets that are on top of it needs to be taken out of the ground and replaced, right? 30% uh, of, of the pipes in larger communities are between 40 and 80 years old. Huge amounts of water just get leaked into the ground. Again, wasting energy and not generating any revenue for the systems that pump it out. Huge cost to fix all this stuff, okay? One of the main reasons that we haven't been able to fix it is that in most communities, certainly in Illinois, most communities, the rate that you pay for your water doesn't actually match the cost of providing that water, right? Uh, when you buy a Coke uh, or a Pepsi from over here, uh, you pay whatever a dollar. It certainly did not cost Pepsi a dollar to make that can of Pepsi, right? It cost them about five cents and the rest is profit margin, right? The exact opposite is true for water supplies. Typically, we pump water out and maybe it costs, the actual cost of pumping it out and maintaining pipes and everything is $3 per thousand gallons but people at home only pay $2 per thousand gallons. That results in the municipality or the utility having to borrow money from somebody else, having to bond uh, for more money, or having to defer important maintenance, and what we get is 100 years later, an infrastructure system that's falling apart, right? Um, if we were just paying on our bills the actual cost to provide the service, uh, we'd have a revenue net neutral system, and we'd be able to maintain these systems, prevent a lot of uh, catastrophic breaks and that kind of stuff. I'm not going to talk about that. Okay. So, like I said, northeastern Illinois doesn't really face water scarcity issues. Certainly some municipalities on groundwater uh, in the summer, they have real issues, right? Uh, and for the long term, a lot of the deeper aquifers that these groundwater dependent communities are on, uh, they will become insufficient uh, in about 2030 or 2040 once population grows some more. But we do have water. There's Lake Michigan water that we're not currently using. If we improve conservation and efficiency, we can stretch out the life of those groundwater resources as well as make some of the Lake Michigan water available to other communities. And then there's this stormwater loss that if we can control that stormwater, uh, keep it out of the sewer system, uh, it actually increases the amount of Lake Michigan water that we can pump out. So we have water. It's just not in the right place at the right time or in the right form. Uh, and our biggest problem is not really water scarcity, it's inefficiency and waste. It's all of the loss, the non-revenue water from our municipal water systems. Okay? Just a little bit about groundwater. Uh, groundwater is a complicated story because uh, all these communities out here, some of them are on a combination of river and shallow aquifer, some are on a combination of shallow aquifer and deep aquifer. It's all, it's all a mixed story and with different water supplies come different water management challenges, right? Uh, take Aurora as an example. Uh, they use river from the from the Fox. They use water from the Fox River, and then they use deep aquifer water. Right? Well, deep aquifer water tends to be contaminated with barium and radon and things like that, which can be removed in the treatment process, but it, it takes money to do that. River water tends to be contaminated with other things: nutrients, phosphorus, nitrogen from fertilizers. And it's different treatment processes to take those different things out of the water. Right? Uh, and so with a community like that, it's mix and match uh, with what their water source is and what goes into providing it. Obviously, when you take water out of a deep aquifer, it's not going to show up anytime soon. When, uh, when you take water out of a shallow aquifer, shallow aquifers and rivers are actually connected through subsurface 
connections. Uh, and when you pull water out of a shallow aquifer, it actually pulls water out of adjacent wetlands and rivers. So it really is a balance about which, which do I want to take from, what are the costs associated with it. And deep aquifers are the major water concern for, for northeastern Illinois. This is uh, a complicated chart. Chicago's on the right and then all the way out to DeKalb on the left, and this just shows different levels of aquifer. Um, the, the two light blue areas kind of in the middle are the deep aquifers that most communities rely on. Um, the shallow aquifers there in the yellow and red, and then way down, thousands of feet down, we have this Elmhurst Mount Simon aquifer, which is actually salt water, so it's not particularly usable. The deeper you go down, obviously the energy costs of pumping it out get higher. So do the treatment costs because you have these radioactive uh, ions and whatnot in there. Uh, and so there's a lot of water that will never be pumped out of the ground or won't be pumped out of the ground anytime soon because the cost of pumping it out is simply too high. It's much the same case with oil where the cost of pumping it out uh, and the energy required to pump it out is more than the energy you get from actually pumping it out. All right, so what do we do? Uh, let's talk about some solutions here. First of all, w one of the biggest issues uh, that we have is this mismatch between costs and price. In many communities, the cost of providing the water doesn't match the price that we pay for it, and so the municipality loses money in the process. The other issue is that in most communities, uh, the more water you use, the cheaper it gets. So there's this incentive for overuse as opposed to making the water get more expensive as you use more, which would give an incentive for conservation. Okay? Uh, and that's what this you want an increasing rate for, for water. Peaking. Um, <clears throat> we use more water in the summer than we do any other time of the year. As a result, the water infrastructure has to, all your pipes and pumps and everything have to be built to handle demand in the summer, which means the rest of the year they're not operating at their maximum level. If you could reduce demand in the summer, uh, you avoid those peaks in your demand curve, and that means you don't have to build out your infrastructure as much, which reduces costs. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> there are a couple of websites here. WaterSense is, uh, is a program like Energy Star. Uh, it's a uh, certification program for showerheads and dishwashers and that kind of stuff to show that they're water efficient. Uh, Green Plumbing Codes, the Alliance for Water Efficiency, these are other good resources, which I'm not going to go into. Education is a big one, and obviously I'm here talking to you, and that's good. Um, our organization, uh, the Metropolitan Planning Council, in addition to Open Lands, who's a partner organization, have created the What Are Waters Worth campaign. Uh, there's this website uh, at chicagolandh2o.org. Uh, there's a monthly e-newsletter. Uh, there's a Facebook page, etc. cetera. Um, every month we send out a different story about uh, some issue relevant to the region's water, but told through an actual person who's working on protecting it. So if the issue is contamination of shallow aquifers with road salt, the story was about the city of Elgin actually creating a new kind of road salt that uses beet juice to reduce the amount of actual salt in the road salt, uh, and so there's less contamination of the groundwater. Okay? Uh, there's also a neat little trick uh, asset to that website. Um, there's this Google Maps tool. Uh, that allows you to look at different communities and pull up some basic information on their water use, right? So here's Palos Hills, uh, gets its water from Lake Michigan, and then there's some basic statistics on how much water it uses and what the general trends are. You can look up any community from northwestern Indiana and northeastern Illinois and get a, get a sense of where their water is coming from, how much they're using, and whether they're 
reducing per capita consumption, increasing per capita consumption. So here in Palos Hills, per capita residential water consumption dropped 15.27% from 99 to 2008, which is good. Good for Palos Hills. So I encourage you to look at both of those. And I brought uh, some little static clings here that you can take with you that have the website on them. You can grab one afterwards. All right. Some other things that we can do. Um, <clears throat> we can use water more than once. Okay. Uh, these are obviously shopping centers and that kind of thing. And this is what they use water for. Okay. Uh, for the bigger places like shopping centers and commercial offices, uh, the majority of the water is used for toilets or cooling towers or irrigation. Well, guess what? For all of those things, you do not need potable drinking water, right? 90% of the water used for these larger things is for non-potable non purposes, right? Uh, you do, I have not drunk from a toilet in recent memory. I would hope that many of you have not, but you can in a pinch because it's treated potable water, okay? Uh, there's no reason for us to be putting clean, treated drinking water into toilets or irrigating with it or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> certainly not in cooling towers where you're just boiling it off, you know. Um, so we need to have policies at the state level that allow for the reuse of rain or gray water or something like that. Unfortunately, it's, it's currently illegal. Um, here's some basic information. There's a whole lot of different sources of water from rain to gray water or whatever uh, that could be used in, for irrigation or for toilets or something like that. Um, and again, in Illinois right now, it's not in the plumbing code, and so you can't do it. Okay? Uh, so another thing that we're working on, and I'll actually be in Springfield tomorrow uh, working on this, is passing a bill, uh, Senate Bill 38, right there, um, that would simply require the plumbing code, the state's plumbing code, to be updated to include minimum safety standards for the reuse of rain and, and uh, gray water. Uh, it wouldn't require you to do it in your new home or anything like that. It would just make it possible if you wanted to install one of these systems. Uh, and that's Senate Bill 38. And if you're ever interested, I don't know how many of you look at this. It is your state government. I would recommend it. The Illinois General Assembly, rather surprisingly, actually has a good website uh, where you can track the status of bills and everything. So you pull up the General Assembly. This is a Senate bill. It's between 0 and 100. This will pull it up. You can look at all the bills that are being dealt with in Springfield right now. Go down here to Senate Bill 38, and you get an idea of who the sponsors are, what its status is, et cetera. Right now it's in the executive committee. We're trying to get it pushed out of that. So uh, we passed uh, the House. There we go, third reading. We passed the Senate, sorry, 49 to nothing. So we passed unanimously uh, last, uh, last month or the month before, uh, and it's now on to the House, and we're hoping to get it passed here in the next couple weeks. And then the State uh, Department of Public Health will have about a year to fix the plumbing codes to allow for this kind of stuff. So I encourage you to support that. You can learn more on our website, metroplanning.org. Uh, there are a couple places in the state that have been able to get variances from the plumbing code. If you have a real desire to go flush a toilet that's full of rain this weekend, um, you can go to the Lake County Forest Preserve, uh, their Ryerson Woods uh, Center. There's a beach house at mm, 41st Street in Chicago right on the lake. Um, they harvest rain from the roof and use it in the toilets. Uh, there's a, the Shed Aquarium spent a whole lot of money to put in a system to capture rain uh, to use in its uh, freshwater tanks, but then they couldn't get a permit for it, so it's just sitting there not doing anything. Um, and then the, other, the, more, the bigger issue here, 
perhaps we don't have to use the rain for anything. We just need to keep it out of the sewer. And green infrastructure is a great way to do that. This is a, a permeable driveway. Uh, obviously, the water soaks right into the ground. It doesn't run off into the sewer system, right? Uh, green infrastructure is a glorified term for grass and trees. Uh, whether they're on your roof or they're hanging off your wall or they're in your parking lot, it's using natural systems to capture some of this stormwater. Uh, so, and Chicago has this weird ability uh, because our stormwater loss that goes to the sewer and runs away counts as water we took out of Lake Michigan. Green infrastructure in Chicago can keep that water out of the sewer system, so it both helps with flooding and it actually increases our available water supply. Right? It doesn't do that in a lot of other places, but it would here. However, right now, it doesn't because uh, we don't have enough of it and because the river goes the wrong direction. Okay. Quickly, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the status of the waterway system and these discuss some discussions that are going on uh, because of invasive species uh, about potentially in the next 30, 40 years actually separating Lake Michigan from uh, the river system, so undoing what we did 100 years ago. Uh, we already talked about this. Uh, the river was reversed for sanitary reasons, uh, and these canals were dug, uh, allowing for us to discharge wastewater and stormwater uh, downstream to the Des Plaines, to the Illinois, to the Mississippi. It also created a, a freight movement, a barge movement, uh, through the system out to Lake Michigan. Um, <clears throat> Talked about this a little bit, that river system, uh, and I'm sure you've heard of some of the invasive species, the Asian carp and zebra mussels and everything that are coming up through it. Uh, it you can't forget that they are swimming through our sewer system. Uh, these canals are mostly effluent, uh, and it's the discharge uh, from all of our businesses and homes and everything uh, that they're swimming through. Uh, I also mentioned that, that the water in the river system is not uh, disinfected because it's not rated as a recreational waterway. Uh, all that water goes to the Gulf of Mexico, and it's that connection uh, that invasive species are moving through, uh, either from the Mississippi up into the Great Lakes or vice versa. The zebra mussel came from the Great Lakes and is now in the Mississippi. The Asian carp is on its way up the Mississippi, up the Illinois, and out into the Great Lakes. Uh, and that's got a lot of people, primarily in the Great Lakes region, concerned about the health of fish uh, stock in the Great Lakes. Um, again, these canal systems also create some freight movement. There are a fair amount of barges that move on the waterway system, uh, typically carrying low-value, high-volume goods, road salt, sand, uh, scrap metal. Uh, they also move a lot of chemicals, things that we wouldn't necessarily want on roads where there's car accidents or on trains where there's derailments. Uh, haven't been too many barges flipping over uh, recently. Uh, so barges are a safer way to carry chemicals so long as the chemicals don't fall into the water. Uh, but this connection also makes the invasive species movement uh, possible. This is a map of uh, zebra mussel findings, uh, and you can see that the densest area is in the Great Lakes, uh, but then they've been able to get into the Mississippi River and its tributaries, damaging property, hurting uh, native species, uh, and they are a nuisance and have people freaked out. So people are starting, and when I say people, I mean... Uh, Mayor Daley, I mean the Army Corps of Engineers, I mean most of the other Great Lakes states, Canada, uh, and folks on the Mississippi River are starting to question whether there needs to be a continuing connection between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River, or whether or not somehow uh, you can actually block the flow of water through the Chicago waterway system 
Um, perhaps reversing some portion of it back to the lake, you'd have to improve your water treatment standards and things like that. But these are serious discussions that serious people are having uh, about whether or not we need to change what we did 110 years ago. Um, and uh, as Stephanie said, I'm on an advisory committee for one of the studies that's happening right now. Um, and it's an interesting discussion to have. A lot's changed since 1900. Uh, we have modern wastewater treatment technology right now. Milwaukee, Cleveland, Toronto, everybody else on the Great Lakes, they take water out of the lakes, they use it, they clean it, they put it back in the lake. Uh, we're the, really the only place in the Great Lakes that doesn't do that. Uh, we take it out, we use it, we don't really clean it that much, and then we dump it in the river and it flows the other direction. Um, and with the invasive species issue, more and more people are starting to pay more and more attention to how Illinois uses its diversion of Lake Michigan water uh, and sort of the risk of the U.S. Supreme Court or Congress or someone else stepping in and telling us to do something different with the water uh, grows every day. That puts the onus on our region to develop a plan that makes sense for us, makes sense for our water quality goals, our water supply goals, stormwater goals, transportation goals, recreation goals, and invasive species goals, puts the onus on us to develop a plan that works for the Chicago region, but also protects the Great Lakes and protects the Mississippi River. I don't know if in the next 20, 30 years we'll, ever, we'll actually see a separation of the two ecosystems. When I say separation, I mean a concrete wall in the canal that blocks the flow of water. Um, but I won't be surprised if that does happen. Either way, the planning process is underway. Uh, right. And that is that. Uh, okay, so I went through a lot of information very quickly, but there was a lot to talk about, and now I'm happy to answer questions and talk about any of that wealth of information. it gets bottled as Budweiser and sold back to us, um, which is true. Um, a, a lot of the, the biological matter uh, that's, that's in the water when it flows uh, down does settle to the bottom. Uh, exposure to sunlight kills off some of the bacteria. Um, for communities that pump water out of the Illinois River for drinking. I'm not sure there actually are that many. Uh, it increases their treatment costs. Um, it does have an effect uh, downstream. Um, you probably have heard about the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is caused largely by phosphorus and nitrogen and other nutrients getting into the water uh, and, and making it hard for shrimp and other species in the Gulf to survive. Uh, the Chicago region is responsible for 5% of all the pollutants that, that are in uh, the dead zone, even though we're not putting in a lot of agricultural runoff, which is the main culprit uh, in that. It's our detergents and our lawn fertilizers and things like that, uh, which end up in the sewer system and, and run downstream. Another emerging problem that people are starting to pay attention to, um, and there haven't been a whole lot of studies here in Chicago, but there have been some in, in the New York area, 
Uh, on Mondays in New York, uh, there is a noticeable increase in the concentration of recreational drugs uh, in the water, in the wastewater, um, and pharmaceutical drugs as well, prescription drugs, but uh, the ones that get the attention are the ecstasy and things like that. Uh, the fact is, wh whether it's a prescription drug or a recreational drug, uh, your body never processes all of what you put into it, uh, and there's always some left over when you use the bathroom. Those drugs are not covered under the Clean Water Act, and so treatment facilities not only are not required to take them out, but don't have the capacity to do it. Uh, and so we're starting to see, particularly in wastewater streams that go into, into waterways, we're starting to see higher concentrations of pharmaceuticals uh, and cocaine and things like that, uh, which is problematic. Uh, the Clean Water Act is 40 years old now uh, and needs to be updated, um, but we can't really do much in Washington these days, so I don't see that happening anytime soon. Obviously, the quality of the water uh, is a problem for some species downstream. It's unfortunately not a problem for Asian carp and some others uh, who are able to survive in it. One of the bizarre things um, about the whole invasive species issue here in the Chicago region is that before the Clean Water Act and before we improved our wastewater treatment standards, the river uh, in downtown Chicago, and some of you will remember it, uh, was totally inhospitable to any form of life. Uh, nothing could live in it. Now, because of the Clean Water Act, we're, we're forced to clean up our wastewater. All that cleaner wastewater goes into the river, and now suddenly you have both native species returning as well as invasive species uh, moving through. Uh, that is not an argument for making the water dirtier. It's just sort of an ironic consequence of cleaning up the water, making it a more suitable habitat uh, for a range of species. Yes, sir. Um, the, the, the basic problem um, for flushing toilets, uh, let's, say, let's say you have a system to harvest uh, rain, and it goes into a tank, right, and it sits there and eventually gets pumped into your house. Uh, let's say it's summer and there isn't a whole lot of rain, but you're still using the bathroom, uh, and so you empty your tank, okay? Well, now... You, have to have a, you still have to have a connection from the municipal water supply to get water for your toilet. And the, the fear is that if the systems aren't installed correctly, there's a chance for cross flow of rain or other water back into the municipal water supply. All you need is a plumbing code standard uh, so that a licensed plumber, yeah, a licensed plumber can look at the, you know, the one, two, three steps of how to put this thing in, and then when a health commission comes to look at it, they can say, oh, yes, they did the right thing. It's just not in the plumbing code because the plumbing code is, is old and outdated, and it, it doesn't match today's efforts at sustainability. It just requires an update, that's all. But that's the fear, is cross-contamination with the water supply. Well, I encourage you uh, to check out uh, our website, which is metroplanning.org. Uh, we have a whole range of issues on here. Uh, we do blog. There's a fair amount of articles. We do a lot of events. Um, uh, we do roundtables downtown as well as speak at other events. So I'm speaking in Elgin in, in April. Um, there's a whole wealth of information here. And I do encourage you to check out the What Our Water's Worth website. 
which is Chicagoland H2O, not H20.org, uh, uh, and you can sign up for the newsletter right there. It comes out once a month, not more often. It will not clog up your email box once a month, and it's very interesting, and I like it. All right. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for coming. Again, this was a feature for part of our Earth Month celebrations. If you're interested in any other activities going on this month, please check out the website at moraineballey.edu slash sustainability. There's also a calendar over here, and there are some handouts that Josh brought for us again, including the nifty little decal that you can put somewhere to remind you to turn off the faucet. So come check those out. Thanks again. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.